Come on, so good worship here. Yeah? Ho! Woo! Woo! So it's the New York City Marathon this morning. I was going to run it. Every service laughs at that. It kind of it actually irritates me that you laugh at that. Um, but we're having tacos here, so I thought I'd stay and have tacos here and, and communion. No, I couldn't run a marathon. I mean, I'm winded going upstairs. Um, and I've got prep devos in the morning. So uh, prep teachers, don't be late tomorrow. Uh, I am still sort of like basking in this uh, universe galaxy display of Psalm 8. If you were here last weekend, we just sort of pulled the curtains back and followed through David's beautiful psalm. And uh, we went out as a family this week. We were in Borrego um, dealing with some stuff. Your family's dealing with stuff. Our family's dealing with stuff. We're all just dealing with stuff. And, and yet in the midst of dealing with all that stuff, I just kept looking up at the stars because Borrego is like, have you ever been out there? It's like a light show, man. I mean, they do a really good job as a town keeping the lights dim so that the stars just are on full display. I mean, I think it's as clear out in the desert as it is if you go up to the Sierras. Uh, you know, if you've ever been like camping or backpacking up outside of Yosemite or Mammoth, Borrego is, is that vivid and it was just, it was incredible. And uh, my wife and our kids, some of our kids and their kids and, uh, and my wife's sister, my wife's sister's youngest son, his name's Mark and he has leukemia. And uh, he's got a really bad bout of it right now with leukemia. So I don't really mind sharing that with you because as we pray for your family, we'd love for you to be praying for our family and, um, and just looking up at the stars the whole time, just praying for Marky. I've, Marky, I mean, he's younger than Mitch. This is just a punk of a kid. He's just like, just newly married. He's got this great little toddler of a son and... and um, fighting this leukemia thing, just um, all sorts of chemo, and, and, and I'm just like, like David, I'm just looking up at the stars, I'm just like crying out to God, this is a galaxy here, this is called the Eye of God galaxy, and I'm just like crying out to God, as you do for your loved ones, you know, and all, and um, so many cards and letters and emails and way-to-go texts that came in from last weekend in Psalm 8. It just was really incredible in not wanting for another second for Darwin to sort of steal the show or for evolution to suck the oxygen out of the room. We got so many uh, born-again scientific brainiac guys that are on our on our team that um, you know this culture and world is just trying to snuff out their voice and uh, so we just kind of paraded through them all as we were in awe of of this grandeur and display of um, of Psalm 8 and then and then like in the midst of Borrego and Psalm 8 and then Hillsong releases this new album like three days ago I didn't even know they were coming out with a new album. 
Um, but, uh, I mean, spot on. They come out with this brand new, um, and it's called, uh, it's called These Same Skies, Hillsong Worship. Download that this afternoon. In fact, it was playing, uh, as many of you were uh, finding your seats this morning and, and uh, venturing in for church. These Same Skies, here's just a snippet. They, they say this, they say, since... Uh, since the beginning, God's glory has been displayed in the heavens. That's Psalm 8. Um, he spoke it into being. His faithfulness. His splendor on parade. These same skies. Just think of it. Just, just like go outside tonight. Right? This time change and everything. It'll be dark like in an hour and a half. Okay, so... <laughs> Uh, just look up and these same, here's what they say. Hillsong says, these same skies declare his glory day to day, night to night are the same skies under which Jesus was born. The, the same skies that the shepherds looked up, saw the heavenly host declaring the glory of God. These same skies are the, the skies over the wilderness as Moses led the people out of slavery and into the promised land. These same skies declare his glory day to day and night to night are the same skies under which Jesus Christ was crucified. We'll start this month of Thanksgiving together with the greatest meal of all. Or under these same skies, under these same skies, right? Like early on a Sunday morning, under these same skies, he rose again. Rose again. Under these same skies, he ascended into heaven. And someday, these same skies, he will return again. Hallelujah. Isn't that great? Isn't that beautiful? Praise the Lord. It just beautifully puts it all into a proper perspective. And if Psalm 8 does that, I'm telling you, Psalm 9 takes it again to a whole new level. So turn to Psalm 9. If you need a Bible, ushers would be happy to serve you with a copy of God's Word in Psalm 9. Psalm 9 is exactly that kind of perspective psalm that builds on the beauty of Psalm 8. And reminds us that the success of evil, although maybe it, it does seem at times that evil is succeeding, this psalm, Psalm 9, brings perspective to remind us that the success of evil is only temporary. <laughs> yeah! And in the end, righteousness wins. Hallelujah. It's a perspective. In fact, jot these down if you're a note taker or just snap a pic of the video wall, that the perspective of Psalm 9 brings these things into focus. Perspective in respect to our heart, to who's on the throne, ultimately what becomes of the wicked, and where we will spend eternity. Now here's what's interesting, very um, hard to decipher um, 
because it's completely undetectable in English. But Psalm 9 is, is an acrostic. It's, it's an acrostic poem that begins, every, practically every other verse begins with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Psalm 9 does. Uh, and so it just works its way through. Aleph, that's A in Hebrew. It's in verses 1, 2, and 3. And then Bet, Aleph, Bet, Gemil, verse 6. Heth, verse 7. Vav, it's an acrostic of, of, of the Hebrew alphabet. At least the first half of the Hebrew alphabet. The second half waiting for you in Psalm 10. So the first half is this acrostic of Aleph, Bet, Gemel, Heth, or, or if you're like, you know, Greek-minded, uh, Alpha, Beta, Gamma, Delta, Epsilon, you're right, you know. And this becomes your fraternity, Psalm 9 does. Your fraternity of praise. This, this psalm is all about praise. It's the, literally, we could say it's the ABCs of praise. It's the acrostic. Aleph, Bet, Gamel, Heth, Bav, Zayin, just Zayin. <laughs> just Zayin, verse 12. Chet, got to be very careful how you say that Hebrew letter. Chet. Verse 14. Tet in 16, Yod in 18, and Kaph in 9. And then when you get to chap you get the next chapter, this next Psalm, Psalm 10, you pick up with the second half of the alphabet. Come back next week for that. It begins with Lamed in verse 1 and ends with Tav, the very last letter of the Hebrew alphabet at the end of Psalm 10. So you don't see that in English, but I want you to know it's there because it truly now becomes for us uh, the ABCs of praise. I was thinking of these gals, especially all at Point Loma. They're part of the Point Loma Nazarene University worship team, and they go to church here. And so they're part of our worship team, too. And I was thinking with all their studies, you know, of business and nursing and, and everything that they're... they're John Flavel lived in the 1600s. He was a Presbyterian minister in England, and he said, study nothing so much as to how to please God. And Psalm 9 helps us do that. Study nothing. Some of you, you're like home from college and maybe just graduated, getting going on your career. Study nothing so much as to how to please God. Study nothing so much as how to please God, Mom. Dads, grandmas, grandpas, all of us together study nothing. Nothing should take the place of studying how to please God. And so here's a beautiful psalm to help us towards that end that's completely devoted and dedicated to praise. Let me read it to you. Look what it says. I will praise you. O Lord, with my whole heart. Spurgeon said, a half a heart is no heart. So David says, I will praise you, O Lord. Come on, church. With my whole heart. And I will tell. It's another way to praise. It's another way to praise. I will tell of all your marvelous works. And I will be glad. I'll be glad. Now, there's multiple reasons in David's life 
why he shouldn't be glad. In fact, look at the title of this psalm, which is also inspired of the Holy Spirit. It's not written later. It's not added by the publisher. It's actually the Holy Spirit that declares that this psalm, Psalm 9, is written to the chief musician. You're like, well, who's that? Well, uh, it could be Asaph. Asaph was one of the chief musicians, actually writes some of the psalms. But maybe it's David dedicating this psalm to the chief musician, to the Lord himself, the author of the universe, the one who deserves all glory, all honor, all praise, to the chief musician. And, 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 and here, look at this, to the tune of death of the sun. You're like, oh, well, how morbid can you get? I mean, that's like a total melancholy downer of a, of a, of a psalm. And yet it isn't. It's a psalm. It's actually a psalm of conquering victory. And so it's not the death of David's son. If it was, he would have told us. Death of my son. It's the death of the son. It's, 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 it's prophetic perfection. It's, it's, it's him looking towards what this death represented on this table ultimately accomplishes for us. Victory over our enemy, our fiercest foe. Some would believe that Psalm 9 is written in remembrance of God's victory given to David over Goliath. That supernaturally, with that Holy Spirit-inspired direct shot of one stone planted in the forehead of Goliath, down he goes, and then out comes Goliath's sword, which is probably bigger than David himself. And, and as he balances and gets a hold of it, whoosh, off goes the head now detached from the giant's body and on a pole that head is then displayed just as a reminder of any foe or enemy that might just think they can come against Jerusalem. It is planted by the, by the gates of the city at the intersection of the roads that lead to Jerusalem. Hey, just a reminder what happened to our last enemy. The head of Goliath is put on a pole and then is referred to historically as the place of the skull. Which how fascinating, incidentally, is where Jesus himself would be crucified at the crossroads in the intersection outside of town so that all would see in the place of the skull, historically already named before Jesus would be crucified there, Golgotha, the place of the skull, where historically David would have placed that defeated giant's head in the very same place where Jesus would fight and conquer our biggest enemy. Hallelujah. And so all praise in this psalm, all praise with all of our heart goes to the Lord. Even in times where you might be able to talk yourself out of being glad, David says, no, I will be glad. I will be glad and, and rejoice in you and I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. So there's four for you right out of the gate. There's going to be 12 altogether. Four I wills right out of the gate that show us the very alphabet or ABCs of praise. This is your fraternity of praise. And for each of the I wills, the four now already mentioned in the first two verses, he follows up with four you haves. 
I will because you have. Look at verse 3. When my enemies turn back, they shall fall and perish at your presence. For you have maintained my right and my cause. And you sat on the throne judging in righteousness. And you have rebuked the nations. And you have destroyed the wicked. And you have blotted out their name forever and ever. You know, David later David later in the Psalms would say, don't blot my name out of your book, out of the book of life. But here he declares that God has, in fact, blotted out their name. The name of the enemies of the Most High God. And then he speaks specifically in reference to the enemies. In verse 6 he says, O enemy, destructions are finished forever. You're finished. You're done. You've destroyed cities. Even their memory has perished. But the Lord shall endure forever. There might seem to be at moments of time a small victory for the enemy. But in the end, it's the Lord who shall endure forever. He has prepared His throne for judgment. And He shall judge the world in righteousness Verse 8 declares, he shall judge the world in righteousness and he shall administer judgment for the peoples in uprightness. Now that is a phrase that David uses in Psalm 9 that later will be borrowed by the Apostle Paul. Paul, when he goes to Athens, takes with him Psalm 9 and makes his way to Mars Hill. We're actually going on a cruise. I I believe it's a year from now. It's filling up fast. If you want to go, sign up. We have some spots still available. It's a Mediterranean cruise. We'll spend three days in Israel. Uh, We'll go to Cyprus. We'll go up into Istanbul. We'll um, uh, We'll visit Athens. When we go to Athens, we always make it over to Mars Hill. The Areopagus, where all of the famous intellectuals, the the, the Socrates of the day, the, the Ivy Leagues, of the sophisticated culture would all gather together. And, and, and Paul shows up there, and he shows up there, and in, 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 the, in, in sort of the moment of their successes, he just sort of drops this on them from Psalm 9 and says, hey guys, you know what? Like in all of your pomp and circumstance and robes and wreaths and all your garb from the suburbs of Athens, he... God himself will judge the world in righteousness. And he, God himself, shall administer judgment for the peoples in uprightness. For the Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed. Yeah, there on on, on Mars Hill, there's this incredible contrast between looking up at the Parthenon, the temple of Aphrodite and everything that's happening up there on the hill. And you have Mars Hill where they all kind of gather together these intellectual types And then from Mars Hill, you're able to look down into the slums of Athens. And here it's almost as if Paul, again, borrowing from David, is looking down on the slums of Athens. And here as David says, the Lord, the Lord in verse 9, the Lord, Psalm 9, verse 9, will also be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. Let me tell you, that verse is as appropriate today for those in the slums as well as those in the suburbs. And verse 10, I think, is the 
absolute caveat here of Psalm 9. Look at verse 10. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. I actually think Psalm 9 verse 10 is the definition of Christianity. It's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Those who know your name put their trust in you. Conversely, you could say the opposite is also true. Those who don't know your name don't put their trust in you. But those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Seek Seek first. Sermon on the Mount, right? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be, will be added unto you. That's exactly what John Flavel meant in the 1600s. Study nothing so much as to how to please God. And then he circles back, I think he circles back in verse 11 here, and he sings it again. Same song, second verse, sing praises to the Lord, right? That's how verse 1 started. I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart here, verse 11. It's like the second verse. Sing praises to the Lord who dwell in Zion. Declare his deeds among the people. Declare his deeds, right? I will tell, verse 1, right? I will tell of all your marvelous words. So he's just, he's just repeating the song. Playing it back. When he avenges blood, he remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the humble. What a great verse. When he avenges blood, he remembers them. Does not forget the cry of the humble. Have mercy on me, O Lord. Consider my trouble from those who hate me. You who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may tell of all your praise. That I may tell of, of all your praise, all praise, all honor, all glory, that I may tell of all of your praise in the gates of the daughter of Zion. So there's the contrast of the gates, the gates of death that we've been delivered from that we may tell of all of his praises in the gates of Zion. For I will. Here's another one. If you're keeping count, we're now up to ten. I will rejoice in your salvation. Come on, church. Hearty amen. Are you rejoicing in his salvation today? Amen? Amen. I will. I will. I will rejoice in your I will praise you with all my heart. I will tell of all your marvelous works. I will be glad. I will rejoice. I will sing praise. Look at verse 15. The nations have sunk down in the pit which they made. Wow, isn't that wild? Isn't that real? The nations have sunk down in the pit which they have made. Right? Isn't that crazy? I immediately think of Joseph's brothers who throw him into a pit, lie to dad that some wild animal got him. He's gone. And yet in the end, in the end, it's Joseph's brothers who end up serving the cause. Look at the nations have sunk down in a pit which they have made. In the net 
which they hid in, in, in their own foot has gotten caught. It's sort of like, just imagine you're like out in the forest, you're on a hunting trip, and you, you lay this trap, you lay this net, and then somehow, I don't know, you get distracted, you're like on Facebook, you're looking at Instagram, and all of a sudden, you kind of forget where you are, and all of a sudden, whoop, you get caught in your own trap, and your foot goes on now upside down, you're just hanging there, right? That's the vivid picture that David paints that ultimately, it's all going to catch up to you. My mom used to say this, Bobby, Bobby, be sure your sin will find you out. I hated when she said that. I just hate it. Be sure your sin will find you out. That's what this verse is saying. In the net that they set, their own foot has gotten caught. In the pit which they dug. Have you read Esther lately? Read Esther. Pull Esther out and give it a good read in the midst of this leadership vacuum Esther steps up in the most godly of ways Esther steps up to the plate and her foe or nemesis or enemy is this guy named Haman and Haman builds these gallows ultimately right that he wants to see Mordecai hung on and ultimately you know the story right Haman is hung on his own gallows He's hung on the gallows that he made himself. That's what exactly is is being painted here. This picture that that the net has actually caught you. The pit has actually captured you. And the Lord, the Lord is known by the judgment he executes. For the wicked is snared in the work of his own hands. Esau fights against what later he serves. It all comes back around. The wicked is snared in the work of his own hands. And then he says this, he says meditation. It's just sort of like right there in the verse. Meditation, just like soak that in. And then he says selah, which means meditation. It's like doubling down on just letting that soak in what I've just declared that they're gonna get caught in their own wreckage you reap what you sow but I think he's also doubling down and saying just soak this in push pause and just soak meditate Selah for not just what he has said but what he's about to say because it's like one thing to sort of get you know caught upside down in your own net it's quite another look at verse 17 quite another to see the consequences of it for the wicked shall be turned into hell that's why you think, I think he said, just push pause for what I'm about to say, as well as what I've just said, for the wicked will be turned into hell. And all the nations that forget God. So here you have this another amazing contrast in the psalm. So poetic, isn't it, that you have these contrasting gates, this gate of death back there in verse 13 and this gate of Zion and now now you have this picture you have this picture in verse 17 all the nations that have forgotten God and then look at verse 18 for the needy shall not always be forgotten nations will be forgotten but the needy will never be forgotten the expectation of the poor shall not perish forever And then he concludes, great, great climax of a conclusion to this psalm. He says in verse 19, arise, O Lord. Now just put that into the perspective of communion, this 
great meal that we'll celebrate together in the launch and start of this month of Thanksgiving. Start with this meal, this meal right here, and just sort of put it in the, in, in, in the picture of, of remembering that the enemy thought he had won on Good Friday. The enemy thought, yes, he's dead, we've got him where we want him, and, and heaven just started counting to three. One, two, three, arise, O oh Lord, right? This is answered for us on Easter. This whole psalm is prophetically looking to the promises that are afforded to us by the death of the Son. And the Son on day three comes back to life. And verse 19 declares, Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged in your sight. Put them in fear, O Lord. Put them in fear, O Lord. I don't think it would take very much, would it? Like just a little earthquake. Right? Just a little lightning bolt. Put them in fear, Lord. Remind them who's boss. That the nations may know themselves to be but men. Selah. Here's why it's so real. Here's why I think it's just so lively, these psalms. And I think every week, like some of you write me and you're like, what are you going to bring out of this, you know? And it just sort of like comes to life and just pops off the page and, and, and becomes for us a double-edged sword. It can be both comforting. You're like, yes, he's delivered me from the gates of death. Yes, he's never going to forget me. And, and terrifying at the same time because we have loved ones that are still caught in the devices of their own trap and net. I think it's so lively because... Most scripture, here's my take, most scripture is God speaking to us. The Psalms is us speaking to God. It's David on all of our behalf, in the midst of our junk, in, in, in the midst of our trials and tribulations and, 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 and challenges speaking on our behalf to God. It's a, it's a book about man's heart crying out, to God. And here David does it so well. Eloquently, David writes in faith. He writes in faith as if these things have already happened. You have rebuked the nations, he says in verse 5, right? Has he? No, he still, he still has it now. But he's, he's writing in faith as if it's been accomplished, declaring it as so. You've destroyed the wicked. Really? This is most interesting to me that, that David really now on our, on our behalf in, in this, the book of Psalms, that is mankind now, now, now speaking to this, to this creator of, of the universe. In the, in the most real and raw of, of, of ways, in the most contemporary of circumstances, and the things that challenge you and challenge me, will I, will I, will I choose praise? Will I? The ABCs of praise. Will I choose? Will I? Will I? The ABCs of praise. The fraternity of praise. Will, will, will I make this my identity? And... and and, and a dozen times, no less than 12 times, 
David declares, I will. I'm going to call it this. The will to praise. Do you have in the midst of all that you're faced with right now? And, and I mean, like for some of you, it's just like, boop, 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 boop. do you have the will to praise him? The will to praise. David is stepping out on all of our behalf and, and, and teaching us the language of faith. The language of faith. And he, he, he calls upon God prophetically declaring what the death of the Son has accomplished for us. For in fact, through his death, he has indeed defeated our enemy. Hallelujah. He has indeed conquered the nations. He has indeed destroyed the wicked. He has indeed blotted out their name forever. He is declaring as if it is already so through the language of faith. And you're like, well, I don't know that language, Bob. I don't speak in tongues. Fine, that's fine. I don't either. Except in rare occasions. I don't think it's like speaking in tongues so that it's like freaking out your family and friends and making things awkward and and confusing. I, I think the language of faith is praise. It's the will to praise that builds in us a language of faith. It's the will to praise. And 12 times, 12 times, reminds me of Isaiah 12. We used to sing Isaiah 12. Isaiah 12 is sort of declaring what Psalm 9 is all about, that God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. Do you remember when we used to sing that? For the Lord, even Jehovah, is my strength and my son. So, Isaiah 12, and now 12 times in Psalm 9, David declares, I will praise. I will. I will praise you with my whole heart. I will tell, this is another way to praise, I will tell of all your marvelous works. I will be glad, another way to praise, I will be glad and I will sing. Four times in the first two verses. Followed by the you haves that he declares as if they are already so. And then to follow, verse 7, but the Lord shall, same word, will, the Lord will endure forever. Verse 8. He will judge the world in righteousness. And he will administer judgment for the peoples in uprightness. Verse 9, the Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed. Verse 10, those who know your name will put their trust in you. Into verse 14, I will rejoice in your salvation. Let me tell you the truth. There were a lot of things in David's life that could have justifiably brought him to the conclusion of saying, I will not. 
He doesn't go there. He says, I will, I will. Ten times now, by the time you get to the end of verse 14, ten times, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. For you will, you will, so I will. Verse 17, the wicked will be turned into hell. Hello? And the needy, verse 18, will not always be forgotten. Twelve times. Twelve times. Thirteen, how about a baker's dozen, one for the road. The expectation of the poor will not perish forever. Praise is the language of faith. I pray that you would hear that today. More than just hearing me with your ears, hear me with your heart. Praise takes us beyond the context of our current circumstance Praise takes us beyond the context of time. Praise takes David all the way. He, in faith, is looking forward to the benefits of the death of the Son. We, today, now, in faith, look back at all of the benefits that death accomplished. Praise takes us outside of time and space. Praise takes us beyond the struggles of now. Praise breaks through the bleakness of our current situation and reminds us this is not our final residence. Hallelujah, what a great thing to remind your kids of. This ain't it, this ain't home. And it's not just a glimpse. I mean, it's, it's, it's certainly a glimpse. It's a comforting glimpse. But it can also be a terrifying gulp. If you're not in his camp, if you're not of his tribe, if you've not committed your life to living for his honor and glory and praise. So David has that choice. He is at that crossroads. He can either look out his windows at his current situation and circumstance and be freaked out. He's not living in denial. That's real. Those problems are there. He can hear the enemy mounting an arsenal that's causing it to feel like the walls of his palace are beginning to squeeze. And yet he gives all praise. I will praise you with all my heart. I will believe in the outcome of the victory to which you have promised to your people. Beyond the bleakness of his current situation. It's as if he is grafting in. Have you ever seen a tree that's been grafted in? It's as if David is taking the benefits of the death of the son and he is grafting it into what he has planted. He's got this life, he's got this career, he's got this deal, he's got some challenges and all. And now what he is doing in the midst of that is he is grafting in through prophetic perfection he is grafting in the benefits of the death of the son to that which he has planted with his life he's taking the future outcomes of this reigning triumphant king that deserves all praise and glory he's taking all the future outcome and he is planting that into his current reality that is monumental for us church in the midst of the things that we are challenged with today And so, uh, let me just sort of wrap this up as we prepare our hearts to celebrate communion. What would be some 
some applications to consider out of Psalm 9. I mean, like, ultimately, let's ask ourselves, what happens when we praise? Few thoughts. You know what happens? It invites his presence into your life. It invites his presence into your current situation. Praise invites his presence into your reality. That's why it shouldn't any longer be like this, Horizon. Listen to my heart. It shouldn't be any longer, oh, we can be late the first 15 minutes. All they're doing is singing. No, we're inviting his presence into our lives, into our current situation, into our marriage, into our family, into our deal. Invite his presence. You know what else? It releases his power. Praise invites his presence and and praise releases his power. Thirdly, you know what it does, church? It purges. Praise purges all that's polluted in us like worry and doubt and fear and anxiety, the temptations. You know when Paul says, I give you a means of escape with every temptation that is common and known to all of us. Like, 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 Like try this. Try continuing down the road of what's tempting you and praising God at the same time. You can't. Oil and water. Because praise pushes that out. Praise purges out what what has gotten in that's polluting his presence and power in our lives. And then fourthly, you know what else it does? It, It proves that he is preeminent. He is on the throne, man. And my favorite, it paves the way forward, potentially for some new opportunities, for some new possibilities. Did you get all those guys? Throw them all up there on the screens. The whole summation, it invites his presence, it releases his power, it purges our pollutants of fear and and worry, and it proves that he's preeminent church, and it paves for us the potential of of new possibilities. Amen? Amen to that? Listen, worry wastes the wonder of knowing that you're in good hands. You're in his sights. He never stops thinking about you. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. And I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know it becomes so systematically habitual for us to like fall back into the old bad patterns and habits and we're like, yeah, but what about this and that and this and that and this and that and this and that and this. Spurgeon has a great quote on that. Spurgeon says this. He says, it's a good thing for the melancholy to become a Christian. The melancholy. What's that? That's the Eeyore. That's like, well, you know, it's probably a message for some others in the room, but, you know, I just don't really think that it applies. That's the melancholy. That's, Spurgeon says, it's a good thing for the melancholy to become a Christian. And a very unfortunate thing for the Christian to become melancholy. Well, yeah, I, you know, I once believed. I, I once was really, I was with you, Bob, at one point, you know, but just kind of the weight and cares of life and COVID, you know, it's just kind of, just kind of been a rough, I, 
Here's the deal with the quote. Here's what you've got to understand. Spurgeon suffered severely from depression. He's writing to himself. And you know who else is? David. David wrestled with it. David struggled with it. I wrestle with it. I struggle with it. I hate those hateful emails. They pull me down. A.B. Simpson was a Pentecostal leader who struggled with depression. Oswald Chambers, that I read every single morning, had a nervous breakdown that lasted four years while he was teaching in a Bible college. Spurgeon knows well of what he is writing right now in this melancholy of just sort of like allowing this dark cloud to follow us around instead of living in the freedom and liberty of, of what Christ has accomplished through the death that, that, that he, he suffered in our place on the cross. Spurgeon called his depression the black dog. William Cowper, some of you will recognize that name, he wrote, just a closer walk with thee. He wrote, there is a fountain filled with blood. He suffered from such a severe bout of discouragement that he even attempted suicide. He's not alone. Martin Luther dealt with melancholy, a depression, anxiety, OCD. Karl Barth, Moody, I could go on and on. Moses, so afraid that he could not in any way be God's choice to lead the people. He couldn't even speak right in public, right? He's like, it's like Tourette's, stuttering. Saul is psychotic. David is depressed. Elijah was suicidal. Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. Paul despaired even of his own life. Spurgeon knows well that we wrestle with the things that bring us to Psalm 9 and remind us that there are over a dozen ways and reasons to allow praise to become our ABCs. If there is a man, if there is a woman, if there is a family, a marriage, a husband or a wife, if there's anyone that has a right to have a bright and a clear face and a flashing eyes, the man whose sins are forgiven him. The accomplishments of the death of the Son been saved with God's salvation. So Lord, I just, I just pray that um, as we partake of this meal, something miraculous would happen. Like Spurgeon and like so many, even David himself, we would make a conscious decision to give you praise. To make Praise our life's pursuit, our objective, our aim, and our will. The will to praise. Bring it back, Lord. For some that have grown discouraged, complacent, would you restore even in this meal set before us this morning, the joy of our salvation and all that was accomplished for us on the cross through the death of your Son, our Lord and Savior, and we will give you praise.
What a great meal to start the great month of Thanksgiving with. And so, Lord, I just, I would like to pray in the language of faith, praising you that souls are being saved today. People are turning and trusting in you. They're being caused to realize that in the end they need a savior. That the nations may know themselves to be but men. David's heart and David's prayer isn't to see them judged as much as it would be to see them born again. That we would stop acting like we are our own answer and solution and we can just simply try harder and pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We have absolutely no means and ability within ourselves to fix our problem. We need a Savior. And I pray, Lord, that the power of this psalm would cause people to give you their praise. that heaven would increase, that the family would grow, and that the strategies of Satan, the devil, and hell would be conflicted and confused. For we bind him in the strong name of Jesus and pray in this moment in faith that marriages would be healed. Love for one another would be reignited Families would be made well and Mark would be healed. And others that are hurting, Lord, in faith, we just claim the power of your grace to heal and revive and restore and accomplish those things that only you and you alone can do. And we will give you, as a result, all praise and honor and glory that you deserve. May it begin now with this meal that is represented by a piece of bread that has been broken as your body was broken so that all of our brokenness might be mended and healed. May we be mended and healed supernaturally through all that this meal represents. And live in that wholeness not for ourselves but for your glory and to give you praise. And, and this, this juice that represents your blood that was shed, that just cleanses us. Lord, would you cleanse us? Would you just wash us and forgive us of, of all of our wickedness, of all of our sinfulness, of all of our selfishness, of all of our self-centeredness? Lord, we just slide now off of the throne of our heart and in all praise and all honor and all glory. We claim that you are preeminent. You deserve to reign on the throne of our hearts. Give you our praise as our Lord and our Savior and as our King and as our God. Bless this church. Be with these families. work 
miracles now through the obedience of this meal that is celebrated. In Jesus' name. Everyone said amen. Come on, church. Let's all stand together. Let's stand. And as the men of our church come to serve you, let's give him our praise. Would you sing this with us? Come on, let's sing it out.